Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's conversation. I'm thrilled to have with us Adam Faleski, who is the CEO and co-founder of Portage. Portage is a fantastic investment firm that is focused on fintech and financial services globally with some really interesting investments that they've made in the sector. So I'm excited to talk to Adam about how he has been an entrepreneur, how he's built his career around investing, as well as what Portage sees for the future. With that, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Let's start at the beginning. What was your introduction to the industry? What pulled you into finance and tech? Maybe starting in finance, I was that kid that back in the day read the business section every day and I was obsessed with stocks. So I just love tickers and trying to understand what moved individual companies and started trading stocks at a super young age, made my dad open the camp for me, you know, quickly got obsessed. And, and that kind of was the genesis of trying to be around financial services as much as I could. And that led me to starting a career in investment banking, which I actually detested and then moved to derivatives, which I loved was way more mathematical and interesting and actually creative. And then ultimately from that, you know, I really got obsessed with kind of democratizing things and saw, you know, institutional investors having so many different tools and strategies. And I was just obsessed with bringing that to the retail market. And so I was one of the first founders of an ETF business in, in Canada back in 2005. And so did that for a long time, and that was really my my first step into being an entrepreneur. When you were young and reading about business and trying to absorb that information, what did you feel? What about it captured you? Because it's unusual, you know, to develop that passion so early. So, what is it about stocks and the markets pulled at you, and what kind of experience did you have with it? I guess it was just the the concept that from an idea that one could create such value and you can define value in so many different ways, value to the customer, value to yourself as an entrepreneur for, for building the product or service based on that idea. But it just seemed like such a mind F that just from a creative tidbit, you know, it's possible to create a billion nowadays a trillion dollar company. Yeah, that connection between the human creative force and then the abstraction of money coming together. But it's insanely hard, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. And I think, you know, I started my first company when I was 28 years old. I'm always grateful that I took the leap so young because I was just so beautifully ignorant. And I think... You know, being ignorant is really 
a par- an important foundation of many entrepreneurs. I also say that you know, while I, I think I'm a pretty good investor in fintech, you know, the one vertical I'm cautious about is around wealth management because I have so many inherent biases. So I actually think I'm a better fintech investor in other verticals because I'm more ignorant. Interesting. Yeah, the appreciation of novelty kind of goes away when you're like, this is how things work. And then anything new is just like, that doesn't fit into the machine. Why would you put that in there? Get that out of there. That first experience founding an ETF business, you started in, I think, 2005. Can you describe what ETFs meant in 2005 and then what you saw as the entry point and the opportunity and kind of what you did? Yeah, so at the time, there were a few ETFs largely based on the big global benchmarks, whether it was the S&P 500 or up in Canada, the TS660. Fun fact, the first ETF ever created was, was up in Toronto called the TIPS. But what I found really interesting was it actually in the mutual fund pay space, that's where the, the real momentum in, in indexing started to come. And you started to see more niche indexes on subsectors, including when we approached the, the sort of dot-com bus, there was index funds in mutual fund form where they went up when the market went down. They were called inverse funds. And I just thought that was so novel. And really, it was the trading community that was kind of the, the first participant or the persona of investor that really embraced this idea of not necessarily underwriting a very specific company, but having kind of micro themes within the market. And you could you know, more bet on subsectors or assess, you know, have a bias to a long position in a, in a subsector and short the broader market. All of a sudden, there's just all this tooling that you didn't have to be you know, a billion dollar hedge fund to, to, to explore. I know we're going to get to all of it later, but I can't resist going there a bit now because I also grew up in wealth and investment management and spent a whole bunch of time in robo-advice and so on. I wonder, given your experience kind of riding the ETF wave, which is the first chip at making investments more liquid, making much more accessible to normal people who are just using a brokerage account and so on. It can be really psychotic almost when you are seeing the trends in multiple markets and they don't quite align. You know, like on the one hand, you have the the wealth management story, which is like everything should be an asset allocation because that's the right way to get exposure. And for that asset allocation, everything should be optimized into an instrument like an ETF. And then if you want tilts and you want kind of micro exposure, or if you want hedging, you know, you have other ETFs that provide you those factors or plenty of active-ish type investing companies that, that let you, you know, look at themes or whatever it is. And so there's like this one trend of the right and best way to invest is to to create these asset allocations and, and instruments that go into them. And then at the same time, 
we're in a place where, you know, the story of the angel investor and being the first person to write a check into Twitter, you know, or the story of like the heroic crypto investor, like, oh, I, I invested into Bitcoin in 2010 and now I, you know, have this empire, whatever it is, is also really big in the popular imagination. How do you square sort of that asset allocation training against the sort of individual private company training? Like they're so different. I wonder what you think about that. Well, I I would add maybe a a third category of the day traders of people wanting exposure to a single name. Maybe we can get to that too. The way I, I, I would square it is... You know, my, my hypothesis, and I'm pretty confident in it, is that you and I and your listeners are anomalies. The vast majority of the population has no interest in financial services, are intimidated by financial services, and they need education, they need advice to enter financial services and, quite frankly, secure their, their financial well-being. So I think for the the vast majority of the populace, one, they're probably underserved. And then two, if they're fortunate enough to find advice, it needs to be packaged and simplified in a way that meets them where they are. And I think that's why you know the advisory business is still a big business. That's why the betterments and the wealth fronts and the wealth simples have been successful with a new demographic. And I think that will always, always still exist. But then there's this other segment of entrepreneurs and financial service junkies like you and I that love the game. And we love entrepreneurship and we love seeing company creation and we want to be participants in that. And then the third category that I was leading to before is, and then there's, you know, maybe people that aren't so deep in, in, fintech or entrepreneurship but in this day and age we're so attached to certain brands and you know i love adidas so i want to own the adidas stock or you know i touch and i feel apple and every part of my life i want to have some financial compensation for being so attached to that brand so i want to own that stock so I, i i think that those are kind of the ways i would square it and I think it's okay for people to be in those different camps. If we're adding categories, I'm going to add two more, or maybe even three more, all of which are robots. You know, there's the BlackRock and Vanguard, the trillion dollar fund complexes, right, that rebalance the whole market. That's one. Two are the citadels and the virtues of the world, the companies that have replaced the exchanges in being able to extract value from the trading from capital markets in part because of the retail brokerages and they have absolutely amazing robots and last of course like all the quant hedge funds who nip around this giant market structure as well when you were building the etf business let's just close that chapter out how big did it get how did you go to market and what were some of your lessons in getting that to be a good outcome Go to market was a lot easier back then because there just wasn't much product. You know, there was the major ETFs covering the major indices and maybe a few of the major 
subsectors. And so it started with just building more coverage. And then for, for my company specifically at Horizons, we brought the first leveraged and inverse leverage ETFs in the world, actually. We were just ahead of the U.S. competitor of ProShares and, and, and Ridex. So that was our original go-to-market. And like any entrepreneur, it kept evolving over the, the 10 years I was involved in the company and you know, included the next innovation, which for us was actively manage ETFs, which is a bit of an oxymoron in, in itself. But essentially, you know, certain indices on subsectors make sense. They're broad and wide and deep, and some don't. And we found a way to exploit some of those more e-liquid passive indices for the benefit of active strategy. And so we brought back active management for, for certain strategies. So that was my journey. It kept evolving and it ended up being a company that entered three different other countries, including Australia, which has become a big success. And then my journey as an entrepreneur became stale and it was too big and I was ready for the next thing. And so you know, after 10 years, that was the end of my journey, but I'm proud that that company still exists and there's still great people involved. What did you do afterwards? A long walk in the forest, didn't do much, really tried to be introspective in terms of what I wanted to do next. And I didn't really know. And so I felt like the best way to try and find out was to take my own capital and start surrounding myself with people like I was when I was 28 years old. So I started investing in a lot of the first young fintechs in my ecosystem. And I was fortunate enough to meet my partner through that, who's kind of on a similar journey. And then after a year or so, we decided to team up. And that was the beginning of our first fund at Portage. What is the investment theme? Like, how did you focus? What became your selection criteria? I was always pretty adamant that I really, really only knew fintech and financial services really, really well. And that was from being a market participant, from being an active trader, from the relationships I build. And so I felt like my alpha would only be in, in that vertical. So right at the outset, it was we were going to be vertically focused only on fintech. And at the beginning, what we found to be the most exciting area was in seed and, and series A. And, and now this is back in 2012 when we were doing this in our PA to 2016 when we, we had our, our first institutional fund. And so that's where we we started, and I think important at the beginning, we didn't want to be myopically focused to one market. We kind of always found that there was great entrepreneurs in fintech in different markets that had different tailwinds. You know, financial services is super complicated, and you know the regulatory environment, as we're finding out in crypto, just is such an important catalyst tailwind or a negative headwind, and. So that flexibility we always thought was important. So we've been fortunate to always invest around the world, concentrated in Europe and North America. And then we evolved as our companies matured. And so today 
we invest from seed all the way to pre-IPO with kind of probably our core assets in the series B to C. We have moved out of our original knitting, which is which is fintech, and we never will. What are some of the early companies you invested in that have done well, and what were the things that you noticed about them that motivated you to do the investment? Our first unicorn in our portfolio actually was a Paris-based company called Allen. He had a big idea of democratizing health benefits in, in France specifically and giving better service and product to, to entrepreneurial young SMEs in that market. And it seemed like a, a cool idea. And of course, we tried to validate that that was a pain point. But more importantly, it was the entrepreneur himself. Jean-Charles, the CEO and founder, still to this day is, is one of the most interesting dynamic founders I've met in my work in the last eight years. And he had such focus on what the mission was and, and why he had to solve this pain point that he was just easy to back. You could just see that he was going to make this happen. And so, so that was one of our first wins. We then met a young guy in Canada named Michael Katchen, and he kind of had that similar ethos of, I need to solve this democratization of wealth management. And he was starting this small little company called Well Simple. You know, that company's become a, a multi-unicorn. And, and again, it was clarity of vision. To this day, he has that same clarity and focus and ambition. You know, the best entrepreneurs have a vision and ambition that are just so huge and potentially transformational that you can just feel it and and you can feel that determination so that that was one of our other early successes today we have 90 other portfolio companies and so it's tough to uh tell you what my my favorite child is but we've had some great successes from albert out in in sf alpaca which is an international company in, and many more I think maybe one way is just to talk about some of these in more detail. So for example, like Wealth Simple, when was it founded? Do you remember? 2016-ish. So, you know, in 2016, we've got, at that point, I think already Schwab had their robo-advisor. And in the US, we had Betterment, Wealthfront, and a couple of others. Future Advisor may have already been sold to BlackRock. You know, Wiki Invest turned into SigFig and was deep inside UBS. <laughs> I remember working with Randy Cass at Nest Wealth. Oh, Randy. I haven't thought of that name in a long time. I don't know how he'd feel that I'm talking about it, but you know, fun fact, the early version of Nest Wealth was actually running on software that I'd built and that he private labeled. You know, so and all the brokerage firms and kind of asset management firms like it wasn't the crypto wave yet, it was still the digital investing wave. How do you look at Wealth Simple and say, you know, they're gonna cut through this? Do you fixate on some version of, okay, this guy knows unit economics and is gonna go to market and we believe he's gonna grow share? Or do you see the product and say the beta for this is so well designed, so much better than everything else? Like what hooked you outside of kind of the the thematic? So first and foremost, the team. So I already kind of described Michael Catch and his attributes, but importantly, at the beginning, his co-founders were perfectly complementary. 
So he had a sort of COO, Brett Honeycutt, who was very technical and operationally focused. And then he had a third founder, Rudy Uckler, who is a marketing genius to this day and, and just had such a mind for how the brand should feel, how it should look and how it would resonate to its targets segment. And I think, you know, segmentation and clarity of segmentation was always their strength as well. They knew very beginning who they wanted to serve and who they didn't want to serve. And they were very compelling that, that they would be able to identify with that segment. And then we had to validate whether there was a big enough business based on who they wanted to serve, which of course we've got confidence in. How is investing different at the different stages that you've mentioned, right? So at the seed stage, it sounds like the team and conviction was it. What are the things that you look at at A, at B, you know, how does that change? I think you've nailed it on the seed side. I think series A, you're just looking for indication signals that there's some product market fit and often that they've tried a bunch of different things, whether it's, you know, different segments or iterations of product. And then they found something that's really resonated. And that, that typically starts, that signal starts to come out in their various metrics or unit economics. And so you can start seeing the signs that there's a there there. And in Series A, it can still be vague and you, you kind of have to squint, but you should be able to start seeing that there's something. As you get B and later, really, it is more of a, a technical analysis and trying to understand you know, how much further something can scale, you know, where's the operating leverage in the business, what are the new adjacencies to allow the ARPU or the revenue base to continue to expand? What are the different geos that they may want to consider? In B, it's, it's, it's often also about how are the people evolving? So you, know, there was, you might have backed two great founders, but you know one founder may decide that the next part of the journey is not for him. And so we like to look at who have they attracted to the mission? Because I think that's a great signal as well. And then as you get even further, it just becomes more myopically focused on the metrics and probably a little less visionary. So you know, I think you find investors, their own persona, you know, fits different stages of investing. And so when we you know, started building our team, all our partners and principals, they look very different. And that and it, it's very intentional because I think you it's really important that you have different personalities for different stages of investing. I'm intrigued by your description of series A traction requiring squinting. <laughs> Can you give an example of what you would squint at and then an example of where it worked out and an example of where it did not work out? How do you get that intuition or that judgment? Maybe you could open that up. The best example or the easiest examples are probably on the direct-to-consumer side where you're so focused on on customer acquisition costs and the channels 
in which you can pursue your customers. And Series A, you know, you haven't had, or pre-Series A, you don't have a ton of money. So while you're testing different things, you kind of have to squint and believe in the elasticity of particularly perceived good metrics. Because you really don't know if, okay, instead of this company having $500,000, now they have $5 million, is what they're doing really scalable? And, and I think that's where the, the squinting comes in. And I'll use, actually, I think as a good example, it's just robo-advice in general. I think the early unit economics of that business were, were pretty attractive because there was a definite segment that was looking for the solution. But in the early days, I think that segment was relatively small. And as you tried to scale the acquisition of those customers, it became more expensive, despite the fact that the LTV of that customer is so attractive because hopefully this individual is building the retirement with you. So they'll be with you for 20, 30 years. But the problem is, you know, the the LTV of that customer is all in the terminal value so that the unit economics up front are pretty tough. So I'd say robo-advice is one where, you know, it looked pretty good up initially, but that as you scaled, it became evident that it, it was a much more difficult business. I think the, the flip side of that would be a lot of the neobanks, and I know everyone's super negative neobanks these days, somewhat justified in some ways, but I'd say mostly unjustified in that, you know, those unit economics for the most part have been extremely scalable. And, you know, we found that the customers are very loyal. And if you build a new product, they will consume that product. And so your unit economics continue to improve and scale as your, your client loyalty continues to increase and so we, we've ex- we've experienced that at albert we've experienced that at coho up in canada and i would say like you didn't need to s- squint as much in in that regard because the segment was just so massive and obvious what do you do when the traction that companies are bringing at seed or a is still very blurry but the valuations are getting higher and higher. You know, so fintech valuations in 2012, it would have been, you know, five million for a seed, maybe two million for a seed pre-money, and then 10 million for an A, maybe 20 million. And now I'm seeing companies with a 40 million seed round, and and that's not even at the at the high end. But the the traction, what they bring to the table hasn't really changed. And a lot of that has been caused by the popularity of the, the sector, some of the, the big successes, but also the sort of mainstreaming of how to build these companies. So how do you square wanting to be disciplined and making a good investment with the market kind of shifting in terms of what it delivers at different prices? One, you have to be disciplined. <laughs> we deployed very little capital in the height of the market because we, we couldn't get there. I think for us, the flexibility of geography has been super important. 
you know, we invested in a auto insurer in Greece. And, you know, a lot of people thought we were crazy, but, you know, they have no competition. They're the only digital insurer. We believe that they could have a top five market share. So, you know, sometimes you have to find different opportunities in different markets where kind of the risk reward makes sense. We've always struggled when we're competing against investors that, that want to underwrite some a PowerPoint at, at 40 million pre. We just won't get there. And that's okay. And we're going to miss some great companies, no doubt. But it's also, for the most part, kept us from some big mistakes. Interesting. It's really tough to stay disciplined as evidenced by a whole bunch of venture from the last two years getting completely blown out. I think the other thing that for us has been great is having the flexibility of being able to do seed all the way to series C. So different stages have different relative valuations at different times. So in the last couple of years, there's no doubt in my mind, the best stage to be an investor in in venture was series C. You know, those market multiples have compressed way more than seed. And so, you know, having the flexibility to go up the maturity curve is also something that's really worked for us. You know, one of the things that you have to do as an investor is learn to say no. And it's this tension, right? Because as an entrepreneur, you are out in the market and selling everything to everyone until you get your first yes. And so you're constantly experiencing rejection you come out of your entrepreneurial journey and you're like, if you become an investor, you're like, I'm going to help all these people build amazing businesses. The equation becomes completely flipped. You're like out there saying like, hey, come, I'm going to help you and fund you and I understand your journey. And like 500 people say yes and send you their insane PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to start learning how to say no. What was that transition like for you? Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. It is a transition. And I'd say, you know, going back to the right management team and having complementary people on the bench is no different than building a great investment team. And so I was very conscious as we build our team to have very different profiles, personas, backgrounds. And to this day, I'd say my strength is after we make an investment, given that I was an ex-operator, is kind of being in the weeds really understanding kind of the levers with the business and working with the CEOs and management teams of where to focus and, and have that, that intensity on the things that matter. Whereas other people on my team just have a, an amazing eye for talent and, you know, entrepreneurs are attracted to that person and, and their excitement for the idea. So it's, I think, again, it just comes back to surrounding yourself with people that are different than you and can, you know, sometimes you can question their enthusiasm for something and, and vice versa. If you have those different perspectives and importantly, you really respect each other over time, it becomes really fluid and easy and not saying there aren't certain investment opportunities that we debate and have a a good arm wrestle over. But it's in our team anyways, we just really appreciate each other. And it's a debate that, that we all want. And, and when we're done at, 
we feel good about it. And it doesn't mean we haven't missed investments. Like, you know, in our business, as you said, we're 80 or 90% wrong a lot. It's just once you've made the decision to invest in something, clearly you need, you need to be more right than not. And I think that requires commitment from your all your partners once the decision's made to do everything you can to make them successful. I want to talk to you about what's going to happen in the future. Two questions. One is around you know the different fintech themes that you're looking at now. What are you seeing as being promising, interesting, and a focus of Portage? And then the second question is similarly around market structure. I know that earlier you were contemplating a SPAC structure and you're involved in kind of later stage financing for all of these companies that are trying to get through the current market environment. What's the fundamental future of the industry? And then there is a, what's a financial markets future look like? Why don't I start with just fintech in general? Yeah, let's do the fundamental one. I mean, as you know, financial services is 20 plus percent of global GDP. It's a massive business. I would say what we surprisingly got really wrong back in call it 2012 to 16 was that incumbents were really ready to transform themselves. And you could you can divide that by vertical. In particular, that isn't true in insurance. Like these legacy businesses, in some cases, particularly as you get to health and life versus PNC, are still in yesteryear in the dark ages. You know, they have on-prem solutions, they have data centers, and the journey to the cloud is just beginning. And here we are in 2023. So I'd say we, we were early on how big the incumbent transformational tailwinds would be. But sitting here today, I believe we're kind of at the cusp. If you look at banking, I'd argue, you know, they've been ahead of insurance. You know, there's been great migrations to solutions in banking cores, but still there's a huge wave to go. And then, of course, like, how do you ignore AI and, and, and who's got the most proprietary data sets? It's financial institutions. And I, and I think, you know, their urgency to get to the cloud and building, you know, a data lake in which they can exploit their proprietary data advantage is here. And so I think that's going to be a massive catalyst. I think the other thing that's a notable change is we talk to incumbents. I should mention, we've got like 20 large global corporates that are investors in us. Is, you know, going back again to our early days, when, when you met the CTOs of these businesses, like they were building everything themselves. And, you know, they kind of laughed that about, you know, a startup being able to build something as quickly or as robust or as secure as as something internally. That paradigm shifted. And this idea that you can partner 
is very real and it's happening in every part of financial services. And I think that's also going to be a huge accelerant of M&A, which, you know, results in a, a big opportunity for, for investors that are inv- investing in these young companies. And then, you know, taking it another step back outside of just kind of incumbent transformation, there's no doubt this whole change in how we work in the distributed workforce, there's just so many opportunities that that's created, whether it's how we pay people, how do we have global ERPs that work given everyone's everywhere, our customers are everywhere. It's just created a whole new stack of solutions as a result of this kind of heroic multi-generational shift. And so that's a whole new thing that didn't exist three years ago that is going to create extreme wealth and opportunities for certain companies. And then there's the last sort of foundational macro reality, and it's always been in place, is mobility and and the fact that something like a billion new people through their cell phones now have access to financial services every year. And so you, your TAM is ever growing by massive factors. And so just, that was a long-winded answer to say the opportunity's never been bigger and it's just getting bigger. That's fantastic. For many reasons, I agree. I think yes and, right? Like that and even more is on the horizon. So then the second part is we do have those fundamentals, but we also have the current market environment. How do you look at risk? How do you look at where we are in the credit cycle with interest rates? And what's your view in, in terms of when things are going to come back? So maybe taking a top-down view on it, there's no question, and I don't know, Lex, if, you, if you've had guests on the show talk about the denominator effect, but that's real. And it's particularly real in, in institutional books in, in Europe and the United States. And as a result, there's just less capital to be invested in private equity in general. And therefore, venture and growth as a subcomponent of private equity will have less new flow coming into it. That was true in 2022. That is true today in 2023. I think it's starting to stabilize, but I don't think we will be fully healed or be back in a market like 18, 19, 20 for a long time. The other important point and consequence of kind of the bubble that we went through, I think is very specific to fintech. And that's why we've seen fintech suffer the most, arguably, is there were some real disasters and I believe in, and of course I'm drinking my own Kool-Aid that, you know, being a generalist and doing FinTech is really hard. Like you need to know everything about a banking stack and the regulatory environment in every country that you're looking at. Insurance is completely different and a different stack, different participants and different regulators Wealth management's got a whole different set of regulators and stakeholders. And I, I, I personally believe that there was a lot of fast capital that didn't understand those nuances. 
And as a result, there's been some pretty horrific experiences, particularly that got to the public markets. And so the pendulum has shifted the other way. And I think fintech will take some time to recover. How do we get there? What are the levers to recover, you think? I've spoken with companies and just gotten such a frustrating feeling out of it. You know, I've talked to Dave, I've talked to Money Lion, that when they were going this back route, you know, it was clear that it was expensive, but it was expensive at the same level that venture was expensive in fintech. The SoFi story, the TransferWise story, the Robinhood story, the Coinbase story, you know, it's just smaller versions of those things. And these companies hit the public markets. And if you look at their actual financial performance, you know, they're putting up 20, 30% growth, steady revenue and path to profitability, in some cases, actual profitability. But their stock prices are down 95%, you know, and it's like nobody's interested in taking those multiples from like two times revenue to 10 times revenue. So, how do we get out of that hole? Like, are people going to look at these assets and rediscover them? Do they just have to grow into a different valuation in the current perception, or what's the path out? I think both of those are true. I think we just need a healthier market in general, and we started to see that. I think people will always discover good value at some point. I'm a firm believer that markets are efficient, but sometimes they can be ignorant for a while. I do believe that M&A, and I've been wrong on this, to be candid, because we really have seen a dearth of M&A, but I think M&A activity is going to be part of the solution. And I also believe that, you know, buyout is going to play a role here, that it's just going to make more sense for some of these companies to be taken out of the public markets and and operate and exist in a, in a private forum before ever returning to the public markets. And so I think as a fintech investor in the private markets, you need to bet that these companies are, are going to have to be private longer because the scale for them to exist in the public markets, that threshold has just gotten a lot more significant. And I, th- I think that's what a lot of people missed is you know going public seems like a great idea, but if you're kind of like on the cusp of what a mid-market cap company is, you know, if you have any bumps in the road, all of a sudden you're irrelevant to everyone. Like there's very few pools of capital looking for micro cap companies. And so I just, I just think you're going to have to stay private longer. And as a result, investors are really going to have to think about how they reserve against their positions. And, you know, we're thinking about this a lot. You know, we used to kind of reserve $2 for every dollar we invested back, you know, call it in Series A. I think in this new world, it may be, you know, $3 for every dollar you invest because you're going to have to stay private for that much longer. That probably doesn't give you a, a good feeling I think it's the reality of of today, and it's just going to take time to digest kind of what we've come through. The flip side is, you know, the companies that did raise a 
pretty crazy valuations in the private markets, if they're growing at 50 plus percent, you know, the round that they do this year or in the next 12 months, hopefully can still be at a premium. That's just, you know, if the multiples have compressed by half, but you've been growing at over 50% for two years, the math works. And so I think there's going to be some good opportunities for investors to get to invest in great companies and they'll be excited about it because they've seen these companies mature, they've shown the growth, and they're entering at valuations that are the same as or slightly higher than they were two years ago, but justifiably so. And I think maybe that's what what is the lubricant to getting things moving again. Fascinating stuff. If you or Cigar decide to do a you know five to ten billion dollar roll up of all the um, neo banks and digital lenders and paytechs out in the market, I'm happy to help. It's been nice. <laughs> I was like, I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay, we're up on time. So if our audience wants to learn more about you or about the company, where should they go? Just go to our website, portage.com, and you can learn about all of our companies, us. Send us a note on LinkedIn, and we'll reach out. Fantastic. Adam, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Lex. Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the FinTech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time.